It's safe to say that 1541 and 1542 had not gone the way Francisco Vasquez de Coronado had wanted at all. As you probably remember from last week, Coronado returned to Mexico following a feverish search for mythical rich cities in what is now Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. Aside from the swath of destruction, disease, and rape the expedition had left among the native tribes they encountered, the search for Cibola and later Cavira had led to nothing. He'd even found himself under investigation to boot. At this point, the various Amerindian tribes living in the area learned only to fear the Spanish. The first contact was so swift and brutal that they did not have any sort of cultural exchange. Even the horse, which would become so important to tribes in the future, would not really be introduced in sufficient numbers until the next round of contact. And Arizona? Well, the Sonoran Desert didn't really excite the imaginations of the Spanish. The Grand Canyon was nothing more than a giant obstacle, and the powerful Colorado River running through it was thought to be pretty much useless. The lone bright spot was probably the Hopis, who were seen as potential Spanish vassals and converts to the Catholic faith. So, when the next wave came, it would come from the east in New Mexico, not from the south. Though, admittedly, that next wave would not have much more success than Coronado. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you're listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 6, Pay For It Yourself. Following Coronado's failure, the Spanish were slow to press northward from their base in central Mexico. By 1548, all the veins of the great silver mine at Zacatecas were discovered northwest of Mexico City. As miners and others flooded in that direction, a violent series of clashes with the Chichimeca tribe of the area would last for decades. By the 1580s, some settlers had made it as far north as the southern parts of the current Mexican state of Chihuahua, and they began to hear rumors again about large native communities even further north, where they lived in towns, farmed, and wore clothes. Several Franciscan friars petitioned the viceroy to preach the good word to such a people. In 1581, a party of roughly 30 individuals, priests, servants, Indian fighters, and prospectors, all set out to find them. It would not be an easy trip. The captain of the fighting men died en route due to the sketchy medical practices of the time. Some Puebloans actually dropped a rock, wily coyote style, on the head of one of the priests that had left the party early to return to New Spain and request more help. Members of this expedition eventually returned to New Spain, having reached as far north as modern Bernalillo, New Mexico. However, while the rest headed back, the friars zealously determined to remain among the pueblos and preach. So in 1582, another expedition was mounted to follow up with the priests and see what else might be out there, led by Antonio de Espejo. Espejo was born in Cordova, Spain, possibly around 1540. He and a brother, Pedro, had come to the New World together in the 1570s seeking their fortune. The pair ran a cattle ranch using Indian labor, but ran into trouble when they were accused of having killed one of their workers. Pedro was found guilty, but got away with just a fine. Antonio decided to flee to the border in Chihuahua, where the law was less likely to find him. On his own dime, Espejo put together the group that would set out for New Mexico in November 1582. Once in New Mexico, they confirmed what happened to the friars. They had all been killed, but this news did not stop his wanderings. His small band roamed northeast far enough to encounter bison and then followed the Rio Grande north and westward. They also, in the word of one historian, bullied the Pueblo peoples. 
When the residents of Pecos refused to give them provisions, Espejo sent in six armed men to either force the natives to hand over the food or burn the town down. You can probably guess which way the Pueblos came down on that one. Purloined goods in hand, Espejo would actually make it to the area of Cibola, where he found three Amerindian allies of the Coronado expedition still alive and living among the people there. From them, he learned of lands to the west full of precious minerals. Supposedly, a trip of some 60 days would take them to a mighty lake around which were great cities. The inhabitants were said to have great quantities of gold, which they wore in the form of earrings and bracelets. They even said that Coronado himself had planned on going there, but had gone partway and desisted due to a lack of water. And where was this mythical place full of riches? Why, Arizona, of course. Don't ask me about that giant lake, though. Some scholars speculate they may have been referring to the Great Salt Lake, but other than that, we have no good guess. Espejo set out with nine soldiers and the customary retinue of Amerindian allies, making it again to the Hopi people living on the Colorado Plateau. These people, to which he gave an unrealistic population estimate of 50,000, recounted stories of their villages being razed during Coronado's earlier expedition. But what sets Espejo apart from earlier explorations is that he kept going well past the Hopi settlements. He would make it as far as the present site of Jerome, where he found something that would again light a fire inside the Spanish administration. Veins of silver. When Espejo returned home in September 1583, some 10 months after starting out, he did so with ore samples. There was silver to be found in the far-flung places north of New Spain, and that had to be followed up on. Back in Spain, King Felipe II ordered the viceroy to give out a contract to a worthy Adelantado to settle New Mexico. However, the king also stipulated that this person should, quote, accomplish it without a thing being expended from my treasury, end quote. Several people, including Espejo, came forward to win the contract, but that last addendum of, oh, by the way, pay for it yourself, was a death nail to most contenders. Out of the limited pool of prospects, three would end up vying for the job. The first actually submitted a bid in 1589, but was rejected by the higher-ups in Spain because he demanded such things as 100,000 acres of land and 40,000 Amerindian vassals. So, the viceroy picked guy number two for the job. However, guy number one now hated guy number two for taking his gig, so guy number one had guy number two brought up on false charges of having killed his own wife and her lover. Yikes. With all that drama happening, in 1595, the viceroy tapped guy number three and the one who finally won the contract, Juan de Oñate. Oñate was born around 1550 at Zacatecas. He was the son of Cristobal de Oñate, one of the founders of the town and its insanely rich silver mines. Being the son of the silver baron of one of the richest silver mines across the whole Spanish empire certainly gave him a leg up. The family's preeminence is evidenced in the fact that Oñate was able to marry Isabel de Tolosa Cortés de Moctezuma, the granddaughter of Hernán Cortés. Due to the incredible time lag of sending for and receiving permission from Spain, and also a whole host of problems assembling his company, Oñate was not able to head north until January 1598, so almost 15 years since Espejo had dangled the carrot of riches in front of everyone. The company left from the city of Santa Barbara in southern Chihuahua, heading due north. His company was a motley crew of 130 soldiers, a number of colonizing families, 
and ten Franciscan friars. It doesn't speak too highly of Oñate as a leader that by summer, 45 soldiers and officers, a third of his entire troops, plan to mutiny and flee back to the safety of New Spain. By April 30th, the group had reached the Rio Grande, some 30 miles southeast of current El Paso, and Oñate went through the formal ritual of claiming New Mexico for Spain. By September, they had gone up the Rio Grande into present-day New Mexico, north of Santa Fe, and established his capital of San Gabriel, or San Juan, depending on which name a source is using. Here, there was more pageantry to awe the locals, including the performance of plays demonstrating Christianity and the Reconquista in Spain. Oñate then set about getting the Puebloans around him to swear loyalty to the crown and the Christian god. He would also lead an expedition westward to the Zuni Pueblos, and eventually the Hobies in Arizona, before a harsh winter forced him back. Too preoccupied with his own affairs, the next year, 1599, Oñate sent a lieutenant, Marcos Farfán de los Godos, to find the source of Espejo's oars. Farfán, who incidentally might have my favorite name to say of the entire Spanish period, led his group across the Little Colorado River and into the area of the Mogollon Rim. Here they met more native tribes, possibly Yavapais, who led them to the Verde River Valley. Farfan was taken with the river valley and praised its pasture and farming potential in his reports. He also found the Orvanes spoken of by Espejo. These he characterized, with no exaggeration I'm sure, as, quote, so long and wide that one half of the people of New Spain could stake out a claim in this land, end quote. Back in New Mexico, Oñate was thrilled with the report, but could not immediately follow up on it. Part of this was his governing duties, though the evidence seems to point to the fact that he was not a good or charismatic leader, and part of it was dealing with all those Pueblo tribes that would just not get with the Spanish program. At the end of 1598, writers had brought him horrible news. The Pueblo people living in Acoma, which had ostensibly sworn allegiance just a couple months ago in October, had tricked a group of men, including Oñate's own nephew, with the promise of food, and then they had attacked and killed them. Acoma had been known to Coronado, and it was a pueblo situated on a high mesa some 75 miles east of Cibola. The mesa was high and isolated, surrounded by 360-foot sheer cliffs, and considered virtually impregnable. But such a provocative action required a response, so in January 1599, Oñate dispatched his other nephew to bring those at Acoma back into the fold, or to eliminate them altogether. Of course, those inside the Pueblo simply laughed off the promises of amnesty and the threats from the Spanish below. But on January 22nd, the Spanish launched a daring plan. The main company went up the steep trail toward the main entrance. This, however, was all a delaying tactic why a company of men actually scaled the backside of the mesa. The ruse worked, and before the defenders knew it, the Spanish had breached the Pueblo. The retribution was swift and terrible. Over the course of three days of fighting, some 800 men, women, and children were killed. Roughly 85 men and 500 women and children were taken captive. The city was razed to the ground. Brought before Oñate, the survivors were put on trial. The sham even included a court-appointed defense attorney for them. But there was no defense for natives who resisted the Spanish occupation and killed the governor's nephew. Oñate's punishment was brutal. Anyone between 12 and 25 years of age was sentenced to 20 years of servitude. 
the children would be separated from their families and raised as Christians. Two Hopi captives were to have their hands cut off and then be released as a testament to other tribes about the cost of resistance. Finally, every male over the age of 25 was to have one foot cut off. It appears that final bit was never carried out, possibly part of known Spanish pageantry to show how gracious and merciful they could be. Still, Acoma had suffered and put everyone else in the area on notice that to resist Spain was to invite destruction. And yet, Oñate had bigger problems. As part of his contract with Spain, he had been promised two ships a year to sail to New Mexico with duty-free goods for the colonists. You might ask yourself how sailing to New Mexico is possible, but just remember that no one really had a good idea about geography or distances, and everyone was sure that a path to the South Sea, what the Spanish called the Pacific, was just over the next hill. To that end, in October 1604, Oñate himself led an expedition westward. He crossed Arizona and found his way to the Colorado River by following a tributary, possibly the Bill Williams River near Parker. From there, he descended to the mouth and the Gulf of California. He returned to New Mexico in 1605, proclaiming his success. Success, however, would prove fleeting. Desertion and grumbling in New Mexico was frequent, especially when Oñate was out of his capital of San Gabriel, which was neglected and never became self-sufficient. The same year that Oñate returned triumphant from his expedition to the mouth of the Colorado, the Viceroy in New Spain was weighing abandoning New Mexico altogether. He wouldn't follow through on this, but the outer reaches of the empire and trying to make them self-sufficient would be a problem that will outlast the Spanish. The final blow came in 1606, when the now King Felipe III ordered Oñate to be replaced and investigated for mismanagement and crimes against the natives. That leads to an important point. Despite the examples of Coronado, Cárdenas, Oñate, and, well, nearly everyone else, pillage and rape were not the official Spanish policy when it came to the Amerindians. Much like the U.S. policy toward Native Americans over the past couple centuries, on paper it actually looked rather benign and helpful, if a bit patronizing. But in practice, it had terrible results. As far back as 1493 and Columbus's second voyage, his grant from Ferdinand and Isabella specifically said to foster peaceful and friendly relationships with the natives he encountered. The flip side to this, however, is that the adelantados in the requerimiento told the natives that they had to subject themselves to the Spanish monarchs. And if you are a subject to a monarch, that means, yep, you guessed it, you have to pay tribute. That tribute was exacted in many parts of the empire through the encomienda system. The encomienda system was a leftover from the days of feudalism, when the sovereign would grant someone who had served the crown in frontier warfare a grant to collect tribute. These encomenderos were basically trustees for the monarch, with a certain number of Amerindian vassals under their quote-unquote protection and care. Such grants could last in a family for up to three generations. In theory, a native household would owe something like between one to three bushels of maize, a swath of cotton cloth some six foot square, or some equivalent in buffalo and deer hides and other foodstuffs. Importantly, an encomienda grant was not supposed to include any land, and legally could not encroach on any land already occupied by a settled native population. Now here's the twist. 
The system was notoriously corrupt and vast estates gobbling up Pueblo villages and free land alike were common. The encomenderos also illegally, and by illegally I mean doing the exact opposite of what the written policy says, exacted labor as tribute to help run and build up their estates. This wasn't slavery per se, but it was darn close. Native men would be worn out working in the field, and women who attended the household would often have to deal with, let's say, the unwanted amorous attractions of their masters. Now, the crown was not insensible to all this, and in 1542, Carlos I Charles V, whichever title you feel like calling him, made a stab at abolishing the encomienda system altogether. As one source puts it, these new laws may as well have outlawed bread and wine. When news of the new laws of 1542 hit Peru, a civil war erupted, ending with the viceroy being killed. Antonio de Mendoza, who you might recall from last week was the viceroy in New Spain at the time, simply never found the time to implement all the new laws. And by the time he was ready, oh hey, what do you know? Encomendero pressure had forced the government to modify the new laws to make them essentially toothless. The crown was never really comfortable with the encomiendas or the treatment of the natives and would make continual efforts to curb the worst of the abuses. In 1573, King Felipe II would issue the Comprehensive Ordinances for New Discoveries, which, among other various humanitarian aims towards the Native Americans, outlawed the word conquest to describe the settlement of new lands. It also prohibited anyone from encroaching on native land or undiscovered territory without direct permission from the crown. To anyone found breaking these laws, the crown promised it would have their property seized and the offending parties would be put to death. The comprehensive ordinances were maybe marginally more successful than Carlos I's new laws. The fact that men such as Coronado, Cárdenas, and Oñate would all face charges of mismanagement and cruelty toward the people they encountered seems to highlight that the laws were at least occasionally enforced. Of course, the fact that Coronado would be exonerated and Oñate would successfully appeal his conviction and end his days with a cushy mining inspection job in Spain also tells you how effective they were. Only Coronado's subordinate, Cárdenas, was left holding the bag. Desperate to convict someone, prosecutors in Spain railed on him for his excesses against the natives. He was eventually found guilty in 1551 and sentenced to a year's forced military service, a large fine, and a 10-year banishment from the Indies. As funny as this may sound, given Espejo, Farfan, and Oñate's reports about what could be had in Arizona, there was no concerted effort made to settle the area or even exploit its mineral wealth. To understand this, we need to zoom out a bit and talk about the massive money suck that were the northernmost Spanish settlements in North America. For Spain, the Indies and their North American territories were supposed to be a source of revenue for the mother country. The Philippines had spices, while Mexico and Peru had amazing silver mines that flowed back to Seville. However, New Mexico and Florida were completely different stories. You can't think of these as settled places. New Mexico was isolated by hundreds of miles of desert from any real civilization in New Spain, a problem, it should be noted, that also kept the more temperate and mineral-rich parts of Arizona isolated from New Spain. The population of New Mexico, not counting the natives already living there, did not exceed 3,000 for all of the 1600s. There was only one formal municipality, La Villa Real de Santa Fe, 
which had been founded by Oñate's successor in 1609 under viceregal orders. The community had been settled by a handful of people the previous year and would be appointed the capital in 1610. After that, there were small clusters of farmers and ranchers along the Rio Grande in communities too small to be called towns. As one historian put it, if the native Puebloans objected, the, quote, unwelcome Europeans maintained themselves with brutality, using gunpowder, fire, and the sword to punish and intimidate natives, end quote. And, unlike Florida, New Mexico would not even have a single presidio during the 17th century. Florida's population, meanwhile, was only half that of New Mexico. That's 1,500 for those keeping track at home. When the first real settlement started in Florida in the 1560s, the Spanish crown was spending four pesos for every one that the adelantado in charge of settling the land was. After 1570, an annual subsidy was granted to keep the garrisons in Florida paid and at their post. As I said, in the early 1600s, the crown was seriously thinking about abandoning both projects as expensive wastes of resources. This thinking is also part of the reason that California would not see permanent settlements until the 1700s. Florida was eventually spared getting the axe due to its strategic importance. The garrisons there could help secure vital sea channels in the Caribbean and fend off those darn French and English pirates that buzzed around like so many flies. It was also a check against further incursions by other European powers that for some reason didn't believe Spain when it claimed the whole of North America to itself. The Presidio at St. Augustine in Florida, the oldest continually occupied European settlement in North America, by the way, kept a watchful eye while in 1607 a small batch of English settlers began slowly starving to death in a little-known place called Jamestown, Virginia. New Mexico, however, could claim no such importance. Though there is an amusing side story that Oñate actually went with a mule team east in 1601, under the impression that New Mexico was at the same latitude as the Roanoke colony and pretty darn close to the Atlantic coast. Even after having to stop in central Kansas, he still believed the ocean, quote, cannot be very far away, end quote. You might remember that Oñate also had to pay his own way to establish himself in New Mexico. But by the time he was ousted, his successor as governor had to receive royal support to keep the project going. That would result in Spain paying something like 2 million pesos over the course of the 1600s. I honestly don't have a good source for how much money that would be in today's dollars, but it was a big enough expenditure that Spain considered telling 3,000 people to relocate. The only thing stopping New Mexico from being permanently abandoned was good old-fashioned religious guilt. We'll get more into this next week, but with the adelantados and the search for mineral wealth coming up short, the Catholic Church had followed to reap a different kind of harvest. The religious officials of the Spanish court made the argument that they couldn't just turn a blind eye toward all those savages wasting away without the knowledge of the true Christian God. And that meant an expense for the crown. So while Oñate had to pay for his expedition out of pocket, the exception was the Franciscan friars who went with him, who were paid by the crown. The Franciscans existed on a royal subsidy, because of course the good Catholic monarchs of Spain would support the mission of the church to baptize all these new potential converts. And these royal expenditures to help out the church amounted to nine times the amount of any revenue that it received from New Mexico. The irony of all this is that, from the outside, the whole of the Spanish Empire looks stinking rich. So much so that you'll see later American sources claiming that even the tiniest settlements 
that were always on the verge of being abandoned, such as Tubac or Tucson, were at one time garden spots where nearby mines turned out all sorts of gold and silver. Early state historian Thomas Farish actually takes time to point out to his readers how wrong this perception is compared to the realities of life along the northern edge of the Spanish frontier. We're going to leave things here for this week, and we'll pick up with the Franciscans and their missions next time, as they carry on where all the adelantados left off. So join me next week as the Spanish, if you can believe this, make themselves even more unpopular with the native tribes. We'll also see how a humble, educated, math student turned priest from Italy would make his name synonymous with the Spanish and the Catholic Church in Arizona. Just a reminder that you can find the podcast at its website, azhistorypodcast.com, and find me on Facebook and Twitter at azhistorypod. Also, if you're at all interested in listening to me talk about something other than history, I also do another podcast with a good friend of mine called Star TVD. Basically, we watch classic sci-fi. Right now, we're going through the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation, and we talk about whatever comes to mind. Sometimes it's about the episode, sometimes it's about the hilarious production values, and sometimes it's about life in general. Overall, good geeky fun. You can also find the website for that podcast at startbd.net. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.